This is a Triple J podcast. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. You know, there's a lot of stigma around being a young mum. What is it actually like to become a parent as a teenager? How hard is it to find support, especially if you're not in a city, if you're in a regional rural area? In a bit, we're going to be speaking to some young mums about their experiences. You might be a bit surprised by what you hear. Later, we're going to have the details on that missing submarine that was diving to the Titanic. Five people on board, only a couple of days of oxygen. Terrifying stuff. First, though. Hack. What we want to do is get on with building homes. That's what the Australian people expect us to do, and that's what we're going to do. On Triple J. Housing. Number one issue for a lot of you. You can't find a place. You can't afford a place. We're always being told supply is the big issue. We don't have enough new houses being built. So maybe you were a bit surprised when you saw a pretty unusual alliance in Parliament. The Greens teaming up with the Coalition to stop a vote on a multi-billion dollar housing fund that the government wanted to get ticked off this week before the mid-year break. The vote's now being delayed until October. Now, the Greens are saying they're holding out because they're not happy with the government's plan. There's not enough money being spent. They want more support for renters. They want a national freeze on rents. But the government and others are saying what this decision by the Greens and the Coalition is doing is making the housing problem worse. In a bit, we're going to chat with the Greens housing spokesperson. But first, here's Shalala Madura. Back in December, the government announced its key policy to tackle the housing crisis, a $10 billion fund that would invest in housing. What the Housing Australia Future Fund would deliver is 30,000 social and affordable rental homes for Australians that need them most. The only thing is, to make that fund happen, it needed to pass the Senate. The Coalition was against it because they think it went too far and the Greens didn't think it went far enough. So the two sides decided to defer a vote on the fund till October. Uh, Yesterday, uh, the Liberals and Nationals were teamed up with the Greens political party in the Senate to block support for this. To block support for this. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says the delay will cost millions. Literally. Every day of delay means $1.3 million a day not going to social and affordable housing for Australians. The government has been negotiating with the Greens for a while to try and get them to vote for the fund. They've made a few concessions, including extra money announced on the weekend. Housing Minister Julie Collins explains. $2 billion social housing accelerator, which is actually working with states and territories to get more supply on the ground. The major sticking point for the Greens is a lack of protection for renters. They want a rental freeze to ease cost of living pressures. We have been calling on the Prime Minister for months to do with rents what he did with power bills, and that is bring all the states and territories together to act on this national crisis and put a limit on how much rents can go up by. Jackie Lambie, who struck a deal with the government to get nearly 10,000 affordable homes built in Tasmania using money from that fund, didn't mince her words. Bloody crap. Honestly, stop playing with the most vulnerable people's lives in Australia. Independent Senator David Pocock also called for the Greens to just vote on the damn thing. I appreciate that the Greens want to try and get more out of this, but my view is after months of of drawn-out negotiations and 
some some concessions from the government, it's time to either vote for the um, legislation or vote against it and send them back to the, the drawing board. And look, it might not even get to that point because the housing minister wouldn't answer when asked several times if the bill was dead. The government could simply skip over the fund and work directly with the states and territories instead. Hack Triple J. Shalala Madora with that update. Getting a lot of messages through. Someone says, what a dumb idea if we end up going back to the polls because a Greens MPs wedging the government over a state issue. Max, don't let the housing fund pass. That's from Luke in Preston, another person says, hey, didn't you have a guest on the other week saying a rent freeze was not a good idea? Why do the Greens want this? We're about to find out a bit more. I also want to hear about if you're in a share house at the moment, if you've been forced into a situation where you were living alone, but now you're back in a share house, because we're hearing demand for share houses through the roof, like busiest on record. So if you're in that situation, if you were living by yourself, you, your partner, but now you've had to move back into a share house, what's happened? Send me a message, 0439757555. I do have with me now Max Chandler-Mather, the Greens housing spokesperson. We're going to talk about this housing stalemate in Parliament. G'day, Max. Thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. Are the Greens making a huge mistake here, like standing in the way of new homes being built as soon as possible when everything we're being told is that's exactly what we need? Well, firstly, we're not. Labor's plan, which, by the way, will see the housing crisis get worse, uh, won't build a single home until 2025 because they have this bizarrely complicated thing where they're going to get a lot of money and then rather than spend it on housing, they're going to put it on the stock market, wait for that to make a return and then only spend money guaranteed from 2024-25. And what we've said to them is $500 million, what they want to spend, uh, is a drop in the ocean and 30,000 homes, which they won't finish building probably till 2030, is a drop in the ocean when the shortage is 640,000 homes. And they also don't want to do anything for renters. When one third of the country rents, and rents are skyrocketing at the moment, and we don't think that it's fair that one third of the country who rents have to face unlimited rent increases that go up by as much as a landlord or a property investor wants. That's just destroying too many people's lives. So if that's the case, why not just vote on the bill? If you don't agree, vote it down send them back to the drawing board. Like, that's what Independent Senator David Pocock's saying you should be doing. Well, no, because we want to pressure the government into coming to the table and negotiate on a plan that actually starts to tackle the scale of the crisis. But do you actually we think ma- you're going to get more out of them is the question I'm asking. Well, I hope that eventually they reach the conclusion that they can't abandon millions of people to permanent financial stress and housing insecurity. And we know that we managed to pressure this body called National Cabinet, which is chaired by the Prime Minister, into finally considering renters' rights, uh, which, by the way, the federal government does have the power to coordinate with the states and territories to fix. And what we hope is that over the next few months, couple of months, we'll be able to pressure them into recognising that it's time to put coordinate national limits on rent increases. So, you know, when your lease comes up for renewal, your landlord can only either not put it up for the next two years or only put it up by a certain amount, say two or three percent. And that way you can live in a bit of security and know you're not going to have to move back in with your parents or move into a bigger share house or even move into your car and sleep on the street. And that's the situation that too many renters are facing in this country right now. Uh, And it's frustrating when we know that during the pandemic, a bunch of states and territories, including Victoria, did freeze rent increases and it drove rents down. Look, it's not 
just the government who are upset by this decision. The construction sector's warning it's going to exacerbate the housing prices, uh, crisis. We've got the peak body for the community housing industry mm. saying they wanted this to pass so they could get on with building more homes. Max, the government has ruled out this rent cap that you're calling for. So I'm just wondering, isn't it a risk that this decision by the Greens is just prolonging the horrible situation that a lot of renters are in that you talk about, you know, just a moment ago, potentially making it worse instead of helping? Well, if this bill passes in its current form, all those millions of renters you talked about, their lives will get worse because it does nothing for them. Literally nothing. It does nothing for private renters. Now, uh, with regards to the Community Housing Association, ask any of them and they think the federal government should be doing more on the housing crisis. None of them think that this bill will tackle the housing crisis. But the conclusion they've reached is Labor is so callous and so unwilling to move that it will be impossible to pressure Labor into doing more. And I think that's more a problem for Labor. And I think hopefully our hope is over the next few months they're going to hear from enough renters, enough people doing it tough at the moment to realise their job as the federal government in a wealthy country like Australia is to make sure that uh, everyone who's in need of a home at least has some sort of security and a roof over their head or at the very least light at the end of the tunnel because they know that we've actually passed a plan that will actually start to tackle the scale of the crisis and that includes limiting rent increases, having proper national renters' rights so, you know, you can't just get evicted at the end of your lease for no reason and also real ongoing investment in public and affordable housing. Are we confusing things, though, when these rental rules caps are generally a state issue, right? Like we're seeing, if you look at Victoria now, the Victorian government's thinking about introducing rent caps, new taxes on owners of Airbnbs, those sorts of things. Are you confusing the situation here by bringing in this largely state and territory issue of rental caps and mixing it up with the supply issue? No, not at all. So uh, last at the end of last year... Uh, while a lot of the laws are to do with the states, the Prime Minister recalled prime, uh, parliaments across the country, including federal parliament, and coordinated national caps on energy prices, even though, by and large, many of the laws exist at a state level. And that's because when you need big national reform, you need the federal government to coordinate it. Now, right now, National Cabinet, which is chaired by the Prime Minister by the Labor Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, is considering renters' rights and harmonising renters' rights, including uh, rents. So, no, not at all. And, in fact, there's a process happening right now and the, Fed, the Prime Minister could go to that National Cabinet and say, put money on the table and say, you can access this money in exchange for coordinating a national freeze on rent increases. And let me tell you, it would be a brave Premier who went back to their state and said, uh, we're going to turn down billions of dollars in housing funding because we're so opposed to stopping uh, rents from going up or making unlimited rent increases illegal. I just don't think that's going to happen. And we've seen on energy price cap, we've seen the only reason that health or education are regulated in the way they are is because the federal government took that national leadership role. So I think, and I certainly the Greens think, that renters deserve that sort of protection as well. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Greens housing spokesperson Max Chandler-Mather about this housing stalemate in Parliament. We've got so many opinions coming through on the text line. Max, I mean Angus, sorry, says the Greens fumbled the bag on housing. Disgusting from someone who has a house. Someone else, though, says, yes, 100% agree with Max. We do need to get more out of the government. So, Max, we're hearing uh, lots of different varied opinions on the text line, which you'd expect in this situation. Mm. The 
Prime Minister says the Greens have made themselves irrelevant to this debate and we heard the Housing Minister already saying that the government could actually just give money directly to the states and territories which would cut the Greens kind of out of the process altogether. Are you running the risk here, the Greens, of potentially pushing yourselves out of the discussions? Well, not at all. I mean, we managed to secure and push the federal government into investing $2 billion in social housing that will actually be spent over the next two weeks. Uh, And I think that really, uh, the question really is, we've also managed to push National Cabinet to start talking about renters' rights, which I think is really significant. Um, But I think the broader question here is uh, when you have 62% of renters in financial stress and uh, the federal government has demonstrated they can coordinate price caps this time on energy and they're going out there and saying they're going to refuse to do it on rents, uh, I just think that uh, is not sustainable. And with regards to the social housing and the shortage of that, every renter evicted out of a private rental who can no longer afford to event, uh, live in the private rental market uh, is someone who joins the 10-year long queue for social housing. And so the other reason we're pushing so hard on this is because the wait list for social housing, which are already 10 years long, by the way, and under Labor's plan, they'll get even longer, will get even longer if we don't find a way to limit rent increases, uh, which worked in Victoria and is used around the world. It's not a radical proposal. It's a proposal that's used in many countries in Europe. Australia is relatively unique, actually, in that unlimited rent increases are legal. And I just don't think that's sustainable. Max, the Prime Minister is saying he's investigating whether this could end up triggering a double dissolution, like see us head back to the polls for an election. I mean, is that a worry for the Greens? Oh, I think that demonstrates that they keep trying to play politics with this. And by the way, I think they also uh, are misreading the depth of public feeling right now about the number of people who are being left behind. Uh, and, you know, over the weekend they said uh, they, you know, they keep saying they don't want to negotiate, which I think is a pity. Uh, and they said, you know, they don't want to negotiate uh, with quote-unquote student politicians. And in Parliament I've been told to grow up. And I think while they might be willing to attack me, who they're really attacking is the millions of people right now who are frustrated with a political system that always leaves them behind. I don't think it's immature to think that the one third of this country who rents deserve real political representation. I don't think it's immature to think that when the federal budget can find $30 billion a year in tax cuts for politicians and billionaires, that we can find more than $500 million a year to spend on public and affordable housing. And I don't think in one of the wealthiest countries in the world, we should accept 62% of renters in financial stress and a shortage of 640,000 public and affordable homes. Max, I just wanted to ask you before you go, there has been a fair bit of talk about your treatment in Parliament recently. Like we had Mm. the Prime Minister calling you a student politician. Mm. Have you found all the debate and the way you've been treated offensive? Look, I think it's demonstrative of the fact that the political class often has deep contempt for anyone other than the people they're used to speaking to talking about politics. Like, I found it bizarre, right? So I've been a renter my entire adult life. The Prime Minister and the Housing Minister both have a bunch of investment properties. And sometimes it is a little bit galling to hear them get up and try and lecture us and lecture me about the housing crisis when, to be perfectly frank, you know, they're collecting lot uh, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars off their investment properties 
properties and uh, they may perhaps have forgotten the experience of it is to be a renter. Now, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have had that, where you often feel like a guest in your own home, where you know that if you ask for any improvements to your property or basic maintenance, you're probably just going to get evicted at the end of your lease, where you know where you get a rent increase notice in the mail or in your email, there's nothing you can do about it. And this constant state of moving and stress and financial stress and never having enough to save up for a home. And they may well like to attack me and tell me to grow up, but all they're doing is alienating a bunch of people who uh, hope for more out of politics, who hope for a political system that can treat them with respect and can say, you know what, just because you don't own a bunch of investment properties, just because you can't afford to make a few corporate donations to the major parties, that actually you, you do deserve a bit of political representation. So look, it doesn't bother me personally, but I do think it demonstrates the contempt that uh, the major parties and right now the Labor Party have for the millions of people right now locked out of the political system. All right. Greens housing spokesperson Max Chalamayda, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. And we've got a few messages coming through. Someone says, I'm a single person on a single income who's struggling to pay a mortgage now in the process of building a granny flat on my property to live in and rent out my main house. Another person says, I hope the Greens are going to eventually vote in favour. I'm worried that this is going to end up like the carbon tax. If it's opposed, will we end up years behind? And someone else, I don't believe the Greens' stance on this at a federal level will help renters. Why not get some affordable housing sooner rather than later and lobby for renters at a state level? Lots of opinions there. Time to move on. Hack. I don't want to go party. I don't want to go get drunk every weekend. But the kids, I just want to give everything to these two. On Triple Jack. Hey, what's the first thing you think of when you think of young mums? Is it negative? Or maybe you had a baby as a teenager or know someone who has and you've had the opposite experience. There's no denying that becoming a parent young is hard, right? But there's a lot of sacrifice. There's a lot of stigma that you're dealing with as well. If you're going through this now as a young mum, love to hear from you. Message in 0439757555. Hack reporter Kimberly Price has been speaking with some young mums in regional Victoria about their experiences. Nothing has changed. People still go, you know, you can't go to school with a baby. Well, yes, you can. You can do whatever you want to do with a baby. Kadisha is 22 and the mum to three kids under five and living in Mildura in the northwest corner of Victoria. She was 17 when she had her first baby. She was actually right in the middle of her exams when she went into labour. I was 35 weeks pregnant when I found out I was pregnant. Oh, my God. Yeah, so we didn't really have a lot of time to process what was going to happen. Luckily, Kadisha's mum had had a baby three months earlier, so there was lots of hand-me-downs to be shared. It's not the typical done thing for teenagers to get pregnant and have a baby. And a lot of people spend their time actively doing the opposite. But in Mildura, teen pregnancy is triple the Victorian average. While stereotypically, people think becoming a teen mum can ruin your life, Kadisha and the other young mums I met are embracing motherhood. My name's Shaniqua. I'm 19, almost 20 years of age and 30 weeks pregnant and got a baby. <laughs> oh my gosh, how exciting! Um, yes, 12-month-old crazy mate, so... Beautiful. Um, yeah, got a bit of my hands full, but... <laughs> that's or hands okay. about to be full. That's it, they are. Yeah, they are going to be. They already are, so they're going to be double full now. Shaniqua is the first to admit her childhood was pretty tough. Growing up, my sister had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer, so... And I'm the youngest. She got it at 14 years of age. I had no childhood whatsoever. Shaniqua says she had a hard few years as a teenager with an unhealthy relationship. 
And now she feels things are going a lot better. And that's to do with her becoming a mum. Got my life back on track and then found the father of this girl. And um, yeah, I'm now living the best life I could ever imagine. This doesn't always happen. It can be really hard for young mums without any help. Shaniqua and Kadisha have pretty supportive families, but they've also had some assistance with a group called Zoe Support Australia. So we are in a residential house, but yeah, so um, the, what you would call normally the land room, that's sort of set up as our program room um, and has desks and computers and internet access for the mums who are studying. That's Marinda. She's the CEO of Zoe Support Australia and has been part of the organisation for 10 years, which helps young mums under the age of 25 in Mildura. Down there, you know, it's got another office for, for case managers as well. We have an area for, um, you know, children to come in and, and play. Their maternal and child health nurses are going to start coming back um, and um, doing sites, um, visits here on site with our mums, which is going to be great. There's four Zoe support houses near the centre of Mildura, all with slightly different users, like daycare programs for kids and study hubs for the mums. There's buses to help the young mums get around and stacks of programs to help them learn parenting skills and for their own well-being. You know, we're here to engage them back into education, support them to employment, support them with those social and skills-based programs so that they, you know... Break that cycle. Break that cycle of, of being on welfare. In January and February this year, they had 20 referrals of new or expecting mums in their region. The majority of those aged just 16 or 17. Program manager Jess says the demand just keeps growing. The reality is it's hard too because, mm. you know, if you're 16 and fall pregnant, you don't have your licence, a lot of them don't have family support. They either end up homeless or their families are not don't have the capacity to support them at that age, whether or not they want to continue with schooling. That's what you think of a 17-year-old. If she falls pregnant um, and doesn't have a job and drops out of school and then has nowhere to live, she actually doesn't also have any enough money to pay mm. for rent. Funded mainly through grants and the community with a little bit of government support, the Zoe model is one that works and Shaniqua and Kadisha prove that. I think, quite honestly, if I didn't have my kids, I wouldn't have done half the stuff that I've done now. They sort of gave me the motivation to want to achieve anything that I could. I look at the house at the end of the day and I go, oh my gosh, my house is messy, but there's toys everywhere because she's played all day. There's dishes everywhere because I've made sure she's had breakfast, lunch and dinner. So that just makes me think, oh, no, it's okay. I've done it. Hack on Triple Jack. Kimberly Price with that story. Got a lot of messages coming through. Someone says, I had my eldest when I was 19. I love my kids, but I didn't get to travel. I wasn't able to afford to save. I don't regret my kids, but if I could do it all again, I would have waited. Another person, Ryan, says, my ex had a baby at only 16. She did distance ed, got her year 12 online, then studied nursing online. She's now almost 30, owns a house by herself, and is a director of nursing. So absolutely killing it. We got Caprice on the line as well. Caprice, you had a baby at 19. You're 21 now. How's the experience been for you? Yeah, hi. Um, initially, it was uh, pretty good. I had a good su support system um, through family, so I'm really blessed with that. But um, I found once I relocated from the Central Coast to Sydney, there wasn't a lot of uh, programs uh, for young parents. Mm. I was... Um, 
lucky enough to find a young parents program in uh, at Narara Valley High School. Shout out. <laughs> um, um, and so it's all about I, yeah. it's all about the support, right, Caprice? Um, it's yeah. and it sounds like you know it can be a struggle when you are in the regions, but uh, you managed to find a group, which is great. Hey, thank you so much for calling in with your experience. I really appreciate it. A lot of uh, messages flooding in about this one. Time to move on. Hack. We're working very closely to make sure that we're doing everything that we can do to locate the submersible and rescue those on board. On Triple J. Yeah, you've probably heard this horrible news. A race against time underway right now to find a missing submarine that was diving to the Titanic wreck. About an hour and 45 minutes into this trip, all contact with the sub and the five people on board was lost. We don't know whether the sub's still intact. If it is, there's only a couple of days' worth of oxygen left. So what happened to this submarine? Will we ever find it? Let's unpack this a bit more. Associate Professor Eric Fussy is an expert in shipbuilding submarines. He's from the University of Adelaide. Eric, thanks for coming on Hack. Good afternoon. This is an awful story. We still don't know what's gone on here. What, what's likely to have happened? Do we know? Ah, uh, yeah, well, a, a few possibilities there. On these submarines, they are run by batteries. So you can imagine that you've got um, a power, a power fail- failure, a, a blackout in the submarine. You could also have um, a crash in the software because it's only based on touch screens. You know, it's very modern. Um, you could also have some more terrible uh, fates, such as a fire on board that would have compromised the systems or would have generated some toxic fumes in the atmosphere of that um, submarine. Or even worse, a flood that would have resulted in the implosion of the submarine. Or you could have uh, the uh, submarine entangled in the wreck of uh, the Titanic because you've got some strong undersea currents. But let's hope for the bet, uh, better outcome. Would would be that would be that the submarine had an issue and they lost power. They came to the surface and maybe they are drifting at the surface of the ocean, waiting for some maritime patrol aircraft to, to find them. So let's keep our fingers crossed. Right, okay. I mean, the first challenge is obviously finding it. The issue here is that it's not easy because radio communication at those depths is impossible. So how do they find the sub? How do they go about finding it if it's on the surface or if it is on the bottom of the ocean? So if it's on the surface, I mean, that's the easiest way you will find them uh, with a radar or patrol aircraft from the top, you know, watching the surface. If it's on the sea, it's a completely different story because you cannot rely on anything like GPS or radar. You know, the electromagnetic wave do not propagate well uh, underwater. So you would only be relying on acoustic sensors. So if the submarine were to be having a, an acoustic pinger, then you could help, uh, that could help fighting her, uh, but you would need a nearby submarine uh, to to find and home onto that uh, um, Titan uh, submersible. But as the submarine is untethered, you don't have direct communications and uh, that making things really, really hard. It's far away from everything. It's very deep, 4,000 meters. I mean, you've got typically 4,000 tons of pressure onto the hull. These are very dreadful conditions and it's pitch black. Yeah, I was going to ask what the conditions were like at the depths that the Titanic sits because it's thousands of metres below the surface and the pressure is crushing, right? The pressure is crushing. So that means that on a submarine or submersible hull, even a little defect 
would result in the potential implosion of the submarine. Wow. Fortunately, the uh, Titan submarine has a composite and uh, a titanium hull with embed sensors that should be able to detect if something is going wrong. Because if things are going wrong, it means that in less than 20 milliseconds, the submarine is imploding. That's what you can detect. 20 on, um, milliseconds. 20 milliseconds on seismic sensors. That's when you detect that boom. The, I mean, it's so fast that your brain cannot even process what's happening wow. at that speed. It just sounds ominous and, and terrible, but that's the worst case scenario. I mean, you were talking about the kind of state-of-the-art technology. Something else that surprised me as well, though, was that I saw that this submarine is controlled with a PlayStation controller. Um, I, 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 that kind of blew my mind. Apart from that, it's a really small submarine. It's not designed for people to be in there for days, is it? That's correct. I mean, the the controls seem very modern. So instead of a joystick, you've got that um, PlayStation hardened uh, controller. Uh, but as everything is uh, on touch screens, just imagine that you know your touch screen freezes or you are losing power. You don't have the old-fashioned controls with uh, hydraulic or pneumatic systems to basically act as a backup. So hopefully they've got some kind of backups. You know, maybe a drop weight that can release with um, a manual lever to basically come up to the surface. Something not depending on the power from the batteries, or maybe you have some UPS and uninterrupted power supplies that can power some safety systems. But yeah, it's a small submarine, so you don't have room for a lot of systems to help you recover when something goes wrong. And Eric, I mean, we saw with Malaysia Airlines flight MH370, the search of the ocean for that plane was exhaustive. It went on for so long and there's still so much we don't know. Do you think that we face a similar risk here of never knowing what happened? It's a possibility. The area is 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 immense. It's massive. Uh, it spans over uh, thousands of square meters. You know, we are talking about just a column of water, which is four kilometer wide. So when something is dropping from the surface, you can drift far away with uh, undersea currents. You don't have any sensors to help uh, locate where the submarine can be. Uh, so it can be. It, it would take a while to uh, localize uh, any any wreckage and it would be extremely consuming in terms of resources to uh, to find her and by mapping the seafloor we are talking about weeks potentially months of work to to recover something. Oh, look, it's really disturbing stuff. I'm sure we're going to be hearing a lot more about this um, story in the days ahead. Associate Professor Eric Fussi from the University of Adelaide, thank you for coming on Hack. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.